Hello and welcome to the latest episode of The Game of Fintech, where we explore the latest trends, challenges and advancements in the advice fintech landscape. Today I'm joined by our very own Peter Warren and we're going to be having a chat about what's been going on in advice tech in Australia and give a bit of an update on where things are at. We've called this podcast Tech Rex M&As and the Advice Tech Race, which sounds kind of dramatic, but really we've had so much going on in these past eight months, haven't we, Pete? We have. It's been hectic. Really hectic. Um, there's some predictions that you like getting right and there's some that you don't like getting right. And I think the last six months have been a good example of that for us. Unfortunately, some of them have, have come true. So yep. um, let's talk about tech racks and uh, maybe we call it upheaval, not so much a, a, as a tech rack. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about creative mass and advice intelligence specifically. What's happened? Um, I think they're two really different stories, personally. Um, I think Creative Mass was a very much it sort of appeared out of nowhere and then mm. had a quite a big impact on the market. And their strategy was to obviously build something quite unique around the Salesforce platform, which actually strategically made a lot of sense. <clears throat> but I, I think like, like all things, um, often people who start this journey in advice tech, once they start peeling back the, the layers of what is required to build a true alternative to something end-to-end like an X-Plan, um, they become quickly overwhelmed and surprised by just how heavy duty it is. So to, to try and rebuild X-Plan inside Salesforce, which is effectively what CreativeMass were trying to do, um, I think even I think, I think they just underestimated how much it was going to take. And... And, and, the, and the core challenges probably there were that whilst there is literally millions of Salesforce developers out there who can build on Salesforce, to try and find the skill set of people who understand financial advice, that the nuances of our really complicated world um, was probably a challenge. So I think obviously finding people was a challenge. Um, but the other issue too is that the, the costs of doing this are just frankly enormous. And um, they raised tens of millions of dollars is my understanding. And But part of that was to pursue a global strategy. So they were not just trying to build for Australia. They were building for the UK, the US, I think even Japan at one point, they were trying to do something there. And, you know, gee, it's so hard to do things just in one market, but trying to pursue multiple markets at the same time, degree of difficulty 10.0. I get why they did it because you want to be able to sort of prove to your investors that you've got a huge addressable market and all this sort of opportunity. But I think they just got over their skis in terms of um, what they promised to customers early mm-hmm. on. And mm-hmm. um, this market, you know, advisors, professional services in general, we're not, we're not um, very tolerant of people not delivering. So, you know, we're not running a social media platform or we're not, you know, it's not the sort of tech where you can sort of accept a bit of bugginess to how it works mm-hmm. and non-delivery. You know, this is real advisors talking to real clients in a highly fiduciary environment and you just can't afford a few tech vendors to let you down. So I, I, I just suspect that's probably what's happened um, with the folks at Creative Mass. Um, the, I, I actually think there was nothing wrong with the strategy. I think building stuff around Salesforce does make a lot of sense for this industry, but just like everything, it's just execution. I think that's where things fell over. And I would note too that their investors were mostly offshore. So they, they had US-based investors who are just – quick in, quick out with this stuff. And I think in the current funding environment, it was just going to be tough for them to keep getting that funding. Do you think also too advisors 
have been burnt um, by moving technology providers. You know, they, they might have gone through the ringer a couple of times now, moving um, from one tech to another piece of yeah. tech. And, you know, we know how hugely disruptive that is to a business. Do you think that's something that you, advisors are sort of treading cautiously, I guess, now? Yeah, it feels like we have a <laughs> – we talk to a lot of it for Nura, don't we? Um, maybe we attract – those people that have been, you know, they, they have so many things go wrong and they actually just call us. Um, yeah, I suspect so. I suspect so. I think, um, I mean, I, I love the fact that advisors are willing to give new things a go because if you, someone's got to be the first customer, right? Mm. You can't just sort of sit on the fence forever. Um, but at the same time, if I sort of go back to my previous comment that, you know, because of the nature of a, the advisor-client relationship, there's just not a lot of wiggle room for things not to work well. So I would suspect that um, there's a, uh, a fairly small group of advisors that are really truly willing to go on the journey with a tech company who's quite mm-hmm. new. Um, and in my experience, anything that takes more than six months to implement in a small business tends to go off the rails a bit. Yeah. In fact, even in a large business, <laughs> anything yeah. that takes more than six months, people sort of say, well, hang on, why are we doing this again? And and so, yeah, I, I think like everything, it's the software always does what it's supposed to do, but it's the implementation execution which tends to fall over. And that's generally why advisors will typically go back to what they know if they have and a I guess, failed experiment. Um, Shrinking advisor market doesn't help these these new players establish a yeah, strong foothold. I think so, and I think that's um, you know have a look at the folks at Advice Intelligence who like awesome people and a great vision for what they wanted to build. But you know when they started on that journey seven or eight years ago, whenever it was, you know there was twenty seven thousand advisors in Australia. We've now got twelve or thirteen thousand. So that that opportunity that addressable markets um, shrunk substantially. Uh, the sheer fact that usually when you're building software like enterprise sort of CRM stuff, you, you, you're hoping to get a few um, marquee clients, like big customers to win mm-hmm. over initially. Um, they don't exist anymore. All the banks are out of advice. Um, we're now seeing AMP and IWF give very strong signals that they're they're going to let self-employed advice do its own thing. Um, and then you've obviously got super funds who are super conservative. So I, I feel like the market dynamics have shifted a lot yeah. from a customer perspective. Do you think too that the technology providers, when they're building their tech, they sort of underestimate things like they have to integrate, right? That at the very bare minimum, they have to be taking data feeds because if we're sort of wanting to offer a compelling reason to move from X plan to somewhere else, you've got to have data feeds. Otherwise, you're looking at manual um, data entry and all those sort of things that are going to hurt your back office and essentially your clients, I guess. So, do you think we sort of underestimate? Um, the integration piece as well. Yeah, and look, I know from talking to some of Creative Mass's initial customers, that was a definitely an issue. So, um, and as much as that, for example, a tech vendor may come on the market and say, yeah, we're going to integrate with everybody, you're also relying on the other party to come to the table too. Um, platform providers, it's expensive for them to build integrations with other and there's a chicken and egg problem because the platform provider quite rightly will say, well, tell me who your customers are. Tell me, you know, create some demand and we'll we'll do this. Um, but I think um, tech vendors and often tech vendors that come in from overseas underestimate just how hard it is to get those integrations mm-hmm. um, working correctly and the development time uh, that goes with platforms particularly. Um, so we're in other markets, a little bit more part of the ecosystem. What we also don't have in Australia is we don't have any sort of um, true independent 
integration layers in our industry where everyone kind of connects to. And it's mm-hmm. sort of a, it's a bit of an industry challenge actually um, because I think it actually impedes competition because in, in the UK, for example, there was a business called Origo that were basically an integration layer, which basically aggregated all platform data feeds and advice techs could integrate into that. Mm-hmm. Um, that got bought out by private equity, so it's lost its independence, I think, recently. But that, that provided a solution. I think um, the closest example we probably have in Australia is a thing like, like Hub Connect have, Hub24 bought a data irrigation service mm-hmm. um, like that. But again, owned by a platform, so that, that sort of mm-hmm. creates a challenge. So um, I, I think until this... There's a more standardised integration model or layer for the industry. Um, it's that's going to be hard to change, frankly. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So we see Creative Mass and Advice Intelligence being acquired by GBST. Yep. So, what are you? Where do you think this is going to head? Advice Intelligence looks like they're sort of um, going to go down the digital advice path to, for addressing, you know, potentially the outcomes that come out of QAR and reaching more clients. What are, what are your thoughts about that acquisition specifically? Yeah, I was uh, probably somewhat surprised um, that GBSC went into that, but uh, at the same time, there's a lot of sort of private equity-run businesses at the moment that would see any any technology acquisition at a cheap price as a, you know, a, a low-risk um sort of play mm-hmm. and the reality is you are picking up these assets for cents on the dollar so to be fair to them I, I sort of understand sort of what they're thinking from a product strategy point of view i think that's less less clear um so i kind of understand the narrative around oh we want to be in the digital advice space but but for how many years have we been talking about this and mm-hmm. who are the customers of digital advice they are ultimately going to be institutions super funds um insurance companies potentially banks mm-hmm. at some point and those companies from dealing with them for many years, super risk averse on technology. Um, there's already existing technology relationships they've got with Iris and Link and all these other people who are going to be trying to sell them digital advice solutions. So there's, there's a, yeah, there's a really interesting theme to play out there as to whether GBST can pull that off. But I understand the narrative because um, it simply just wouldn't make sense to double down on advisor tech as a strategy when it hadn't worked for the things you've just bought, you've got to kind of pivot somehow. Um, so I kind of get what they're saying, but jury's out as to how how well it will go. Yeah. Okay. Good points. All right. Mergers and acquisitions in advice fintech. So we've had a few going on. Probably one of the really notable ones was uh, My Prosperity being acquired by Hub24. That's, um, yeah. I, I feel like that's a pretty exciting one. We're, we're excited um, about that at Fenura and, and think that sort of makes a lot of sense what do you what do you think about that yeah i mean it makes a lot of sense for hub that's for sure um uh i think you know we we have long talked about how client portal is the most underrated part of the advice tech stack and um and obviously things like COVID and cyber have now really brought that to the forefront and we i think a couple of years ago we sort of made some predictions that client portal will be a really hot area mm-hmm. um so you know really no shock to see um, my prosperity get acquired or, you know, it was always going to have to find some path and it was either going to really double down and do its own acquiring and become something much bigger or get acquired. Um, the And I think they are truly the only standalone client portal that have got, you know, true traction, 500 practices, um, all the industrial grade 
security, mm-hmm. mobile friendly. You know, they've sort of ticked all those boxes. But you know, by no means an overnight success. I think the team there have been going for you know nearly ten years. So yeah. you know, there's no such thing as an overnight success. Um, however, it, look, uh, you know, being acquired by a platform does change the dynamic of the business for some. Um, other platforms, you know, this will just spur more competition, which I think is awesome for advisors. So it'll obviously make net wealth double down on their strategy for client portal. Um, I think it's going to give Iris something to think about because they've been pretty static with their client portal strategy and we can talk mm-hmm. about Iris in a minute. Um, but there's probably room for another independent client portal player to come out. What I would say though, building client portals is something, there's no shortcuts. It's got to be, you've got to understand mobile, you've got to understand client UI, you've got to get the integration piece right, which has generally taken my prosperity 10 years to do. And um, and the security stuff, just absolutely happy over that. So I, I think the people that are going to be in client portals have to be you know, pretty well-resourced businesses to nail it. Um, but I, I still feel there's room for someone else potentially. Um, and, and I think the team at My Prosperity would argue that that's fine as well because they, they want to see the category build out um, mm-hmm. as well. So most advice, most firms we advise who don't have a client portal strategy yeah. do the dang, but very yeah, rarely. No, um, no. So it's thing. Um, and so I think this is probably where you know, the likes of Intelliflow come into the market. They've got a really robust client mm-hmm. portal strategy in the UK and the US and they've got that for Australia. So they'll, they'll see this as a good opportunity too as well. The, the thing for me is, um, you know, Hub, Hub have bought a, a sort of a standalone client portal business that can run really well and, and it'll be interesting to see from a product perspective what they do with the platform and the portal mm. and they've got class and there's a whole accounting piece to that which we never talk about but I think it's a hugely, um, um, you know, people don't think about it enough but it's actually a bigger part of that high prosperity business is the accounting market. You know, 100,000 accountants, 10,000 advisors, where are you going to spend your time? Yeah. But the, 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 the interesting thing for me is though where is the natural home of the, portal does it sit closer to the crm does it sit closer to the platform and i think it's something net wealth customers are grappling with um i i i think advisors just really underestimate how critical that decision is going to be for the next 10 years of their business because it's the one bit of advice tech that once you implement it with your clients it's really hard to pull it out because yeah. it's on the client's phones it's yeah. your whole relationship with the client so and it sort of forms um, i guess part of your it then is your part of your client value proposition, right? It, it sits into your processes. It sits into what your clients are paying potentially um, for your services. So, yeah, as you say, yeah. it's it's hard to to remove that. Yeah, it's, it's- yeah. clients don't know you're using X plan for modeling. Mm. Well, they no. some might, but they probably don't. Yeah, but they'll know you're using what portal you're using. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it's a really big call what you go with. Um, and so I think a lot of businesses are going to be making that decision in the next three years, and that's why Hub bought my prosperity. And and I, and I would say, um, I, I think actually for my prosperity, it's awesome to have a really well capitalized backer because mm-hmm. Hub can spend serious money on that business, um, and they have such penetration across the market. So for those customers, I think it's a real win. I just think there's going to be some businesses that will want a, a portal that's truly independent, um, but that could be harder to find in the future. Yeah, and I think, you know, we sort of talk about um, the platform tech race and, and where 
platforms are really well funded to to make these acquisitions and to invest the the time in in building out integrations and that sort of thing. We're sort of seeing that play out with a couple of the platform providers at the moment, where they're really sort of trying to build out their their technology to. We like to use the um, the framework of jobs to be done um, when mm. we're talking to our clients about um, using technology and and where technology sits in in all of those. Um, pieces of the advice journey and I sort of I'm sort of feeling that the platforms are trying to slot a little bit more and broaden where they fit into those jobs to be done you know normally it's just sort of maybe in the implementation and review um, side of things but now we're sort of seeing them merge into client onboarding and um, you know client portals obviously with with what Hub24 are doing what we just talked about with the My Prosperity acquisition so how do you think this is going to play out? Uh, Look inevitable and we've long predicted that platforms mm. would increase and become the center of the universe when it comes to tech. And, and it's for a very simple reason, is the market cap balance sheet strength of the platforms just outweighs everybody else. Yeah. And in the last 72 hours, that's only gotten bigger. Hub's share price went up 10% or more the other day, yesterday. Um, Net wealth had some good results. So, and, and Iris, which we'll get to, have had some not so good results. So currently today, Hub24 and NetWell's combined market caps are about $7 billion mm. in balance sheet. Iris's market cap this morning is $1.1 billion in yeah. total. Significant. So You've got, you got two platforms that are the fastest growing, but still relatively small market share, worth seven times the dominant advice tech provider globally in, a, you know, in terms of Australia, UK. So as much as people around the industry would like to think platforms aren't the center of the universe. We have to be realists and say, you know what? They may, from an advice perspective, they're kind of the end of the process and they're just the admin and all the rest of it. But from an industry perspective, that's where all the balance sheet is. That's where all the strength is. It's not the licensees, that's for sure. But let's yeah. talk, you know, talk, talk numbers. Licensee balance sheets are not strong. So, uh, yeah, I, I think... Um, yeah, like whether we like it or not, I think platforms are going to be the major players in advice tech in the next three to four years. Uh, and you know what? If you look at – that's maybe not a bad thing because you look at the satisfaction levels of platforms, our friends and investment trends, you know, they're, satisfied, they're consistently getting higher and higher. The competition mm-hmm. is still red hot in platforms, but there's no real competition in advice tech, really. Yeah. No, there's, no, there's no sort of – we're not in a situation where we've got three players with equal market share duking it out on features mm-hmm. um but the platforms my god it's competitive for those guys yeah. so that's why you're seeing that um the other part of it is who pays for this stuff so platforms client pays mm-hmm. license and pay i think iris's performance is showing what the challenge is if your business model is around advisors paying for your services and software at the moment yeah so let's talk about so, um if we jump back to the results that iris have just um release this week it's it is sort of interesting isn't it because we still see as you say iris is dominant in the in the market when it comes to advisors using their technology um what's happening there are we going to sort of see a change do you think in in how iris delivers their technology to to the market are they are we looking at sort of packaging certain parts of it up i you know do we have a crystal ball on this one <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, look, we, we, we probably can't get claim a crystal ball because we have a good relationship with Iris, so we probably know some things that they're thinking about. But I um, I think you have to look at more holistically, though. So Iris is a whole bunch of parts of their business which are underperforming. Um, the X-Plan business in Australia is probably the 
the, the most robust, frankly. And a lot mm-hmm. of the Morningstar and Baron Joey and the analysts we talked to have all validated that in the last um, day or so that they certainly believe that X-Plan is the the star of the business and what they should continue to focus on. And and, and one could argue in the last four or five years that Iris by pursuing um, global expansion, other products and adjacencies like buying OneView and all the things they were trying to do potentially lost focus on their X-Plan business and their X-Plan strategy. So, and I think they would probably privately acknowledge that that's fair. There's only so mm-hmm. much you can do as a company, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I I suspect Iris will double double their efforts on protecting the jewel in the crown, which is X-Plan in Australia. And I think that's good for advisors yeah. because that's still 80% of the market is using those services. And we, you know, people often forget we need Iris to perform well as a company. They mm-hmm. are a critical part of the infrastructure of this industry. Yeah. Um, we, I mean, you sort of look at their tools. I was going to say, Sorry. when you look at um, the tools that exist in X-Plane when it comes to advice production, um, research, the research, they're, they're almost second to none, right? It's it's sort of difficult to find strong comparisons to uh, what they offer, especially with X-Tools Plus, right? It's If you're sort of embedded sure. in that X-Tools Plus world and you're using it and your power planners are using it, um, it's there's not really a lot of comparisons out there, are there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, there's, there's others to do other things, but the way the tools all talk to each other is quite yeah. unique. And that's the probably, it's the sum of the, the combined thing. And, and Iris got that strategy right from the start. Mm-hmm. I, I think part of their, their challenge has, and you see this in the numbers, is that you know, they're not immune to shrinking advisor numbers. So to actually, they held their revenue actually in Explain, which is pretty remarkable when you think about how much the market's shrunk. Mm-hmm. That tells me they're almost, they could arguably winning market share. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get data, but I, I, I mean, if they're holding their revenue and the market shrinking, they must be growing market share somehow. I, I don't yeah. know, but that's that's one. Yes, there's competition, um, albeit less. I think with recent the news we spoke about. Um, I, I think what they're going to have to think about though is the market's no longer the banks and these sort of big advice businesses, which they had the luxury of um, four or five years ago. It's now a complete IFA market. So I think Iris will need to think really carefully about um, product packaging pricing and support models for the future and think about who they partner with to do those things um, because a lot of it's really been outsourced to licensees or services businesses who do that work and there's a really wide um, range of quality in how that's done and if it was my product I'd want to have a lot of say on how those services were delivered and what the customer experience actually really was because mm-hmm. as as you know, Danny, like you talk to one X-Plan user and they're a real advocate for it and they love it and it works really well for them. You talk to another and they can't stand the thing. And yeah. I reckon that's just because of configuration or all those things. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I think – and look, I just think these moments for all companies – every company goes through this moment that Iris is going through and you know, Microsoft went through it you know, at mm-hmm. a much bigger scale. And, Jesus, look at them now. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, you've got, a, you've got a new leadership team. The, the blood's been spilt. Um, the share price is down 35 40% now, and now they've got to just get on with it and reset yeah. it. Um, but this industry can't afford for Iris to wobble because yeah. we are so dependent on for infrastructure. So um, let's hope they get on and do what they do and, and ideally focus on Australia, and I think that's what they've said they're going to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about 
Microsoft. We just just briefly mentioned Microsoft there and also Salesforce. And we're sort of seeing when we're working with our clients on um, tech roadmaps, uh, people sort of getting deeper, I guess, into that Microsoft, the, the Microsoft tools that are available. Those Microsoft tools used to probably be a little bit you know, substandard, I guess, but now they're, they're actually quite cool. You can do quite a lot in that Microsoft suite. So you're sort of keeping things in a centralized area. It integrates really well. You can um, build workflows in it. It's, it's mm. kind of pretty cool and it's cheap and we all have it. And, you know, all these, all these tick boxes with, with Microsoft. Um, and the other one is Salesforce. You know, we're sort of seeing advisors maybe step out of the traditional advice CRMs and moving into something a bit more contemporary like Salesforce to, mm. to run their um, CRM and, again, workflow practice management insights, all that sort of stuff. Where do you think we're going to go with Salesforce? Is this going to be something that's going to get bigger as we as we move on here? How are we going to work with Microsoft and Salesforce in the advice tech space? Yeah, they're, um, they're two different cases. I mean, as you, you know, said, Microsoft sits on everyone's desktop. They use it mm-hmm. already and we've been using it all since we started work. Most of us have been using Outlook since we ever started. Um, yeah, I don't remember. I never had Lotus Notes. I'm not that old. So, yeah. <laughs> 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 um, but And it's really interesting because we, we often, I often make a joke that, you know, the number people say, what's the number one? A piece of advice software and sometimes we say x-plan but other times we'll actually say hey it's really microsoft word and excel mm-hmm. you know because everyone's got their spreadsheets they use yeah. either in front of clients or produce advice soas end up in word one way or another um and what's the i don't know what you think danny but i just think the critical change here is that those tools now with AI, with Copilot AI coming into Excel and Word, I think it's going to dramatically change how people use those tools. Mm-hmm. So I think we're just going to have to figure this stuff out as we go along. But maybe that, you know, we sort of always said, hey, you can't run your business on spreadsheets. Well, mm-hmm. is, that, is that true now with AI? Well, not with AI. It's a good question. No, you get AI to run your spreadsheet for you. Not that well, we're recommending well, thing, that you right? do that, but well, I know so many people who have built you know, their careers on being the pivot table champion, yes. in a company or whatever. You don't need that anymore. Yeah, AI can structure data really well for you, providing data is clean. Um, so I, I think also I, using I things of, like templates and you know mm, all those things, those day to day things when it comes to implementation, following up your clients. You know, the kind of mundane tasks that you need to do in the back office, Copilot can kind of do that for you now, right? Or it can definitely help so. you with all of that. Yes, I, I think um, I think this is going to keep us really busy for the next few years is working out how to use Copilots to their best effect in professional services businesses like advice firms, um, mm. getting people comfortable with it, training it, um, yeah. you know, that. That you know that old saying that well it's not an old saying now it's a new saying that everyone says it that AI won't replace humans but humans that use AI will um, yeah. and I actually agree with that and so um, and there's going to have to be a lot of controls and things like that but 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 I yeah it's too big to ignore and mm-hmm. I, I just I just love the way Microsoft is slowly dripping AI into our world so even <laughs> yeah. you know Fedora like we have sales co-pilot turned on we're using it in teams that's so transcribing all their meeting notes and pulling out action items and mm-hmm. and the more you get into it the more you get comfortable with it and you go Jesus this really makes my life a lot easier so I think it's super cool and as you said 
um, it's relatively well priced. People are going to have to pay a lot more though for AI features. So mm-hmm. strap yourselves in for that, and also yeah. strap yourselves in for price increases because um, people forget the computing power that has to go behind these AI models and the cloud computing to make all this work is is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, so I think again, strap yourself in for spending more on tech, but the the the, the benefits are just enormous and far outweigh the you know the the thing. Um, Salesforce is an interesting one. You know, how many businesses, Danny, do we talk to where you go in and you sort of see Salesforce and you go, well, why did you why did you make this decision? Yeah. Yeah. I do find it interesting. It it doesn't make sense for some of our clients. It hasn't made sense. Uh, especially the smaller, you know, the smaller businesses where we're talking about three advisors or, you know, a, a kind of uh, advisors that have just come together and, and they're using Salesforce. To, to me and to us, I think that doesn't sort of really make sense. It's a huge cost and you've got to get mm-hmm. someone to configure the thing unless you know how to do it yourself and it's a beast and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it, it, the thing that I, I guess the thing, the concern with Salesforce at the moment in fintech in, in Australia is that it doesn't really integrate very well with our existing advice tech tools you know, yeah. we're going to get need an external um, person to build that integration out, and that's time and cost and money and all the rest of it. You've got to really be prepared to, I think, invest heavily in Salesforce. So if you're going to bring it in as a solution, you've got to be damn sure that you're going to be invested for the long run, and it's actually right for your business. Yeah, I, I just feel like so many businesses, it, it's been sold to them almost. And don't get me mm-hmm. wrong, Salesforce are an awesome sales organization they've got bloody good salespeople. um but i think it i think people buy people buy the dream of what it can do for them what they think it can do but the reality of actually making it work is a whole different story and the things that we hear the criticisms we hear of things like x-plan we hear all the same stuff about salesforce Dan. Mm-hmm. so again one uh, one person's salesforce is not the same as another person's experience in an organization um, and you're right, these small businesses, I'd say even if you have less than 20 staff, you'd be mad mm-hmm. to look at Salesforce because first of all, as you said, you've got to have an admin who can actually do the stuff and work work with it, who's trained on it and actually wants to spend the time learning it. You're still going to need external support for development. Anything custom requires dev. Um, and, you know, I can't remember in our business case work we do with clients, but we, we generally budget whatever you're spending on annual licenses, you're going to spend again on config and support, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, even more potentially, depending yeah. on what you need done. And there's no out of the box version for fun. and even there's a, sorry, there are a couple of out of the box versions of Salesforce, but there's no such thing as a business in our world that's kind of out of the box and just does yeah. things the same way as everyone. So yeah, yeah. I, I I think um, yeah, I, I certainly think for uh, larger businesses with lots and lots of clients who have really strong lead gen processes, funnels, really strong workflows, multidisciplinary. So if you've got accounting, financial planning, legal, investment mm-hmm. management, those kind of businesses, then obviously a a big uh, industrial grade CRM makes a lot of sense. But you've got to remember Salesforce is built for organizations that have millions of customers in some cases. You know, it's, yeah. it's that sort of powerful. Governments use it, you know, to run various. I mean, the whole COVID thing was run by on Salesforce. So mm-hmm. COVID tracking was run on Salesforce. 
at least it was in Victoria. We probably spent. Oh, wow. I didn't. You know, didn't probably, know that. We probably spent. We probably spent a billion dollars implementing Salesforce in Victoria. <laughs> um, anyway, I get into that. That's another podcast. Um, you know, <laughs> um, but 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 that's what I mean. That's the power of it. And I so so I just I just I just use the analogy. Are we just putting Salesforce in to solve all these problems? Are we aiming a nuclear warhead at an anthill in terms of what we need? Um, mm-hmm. And the guys at Microsoft now. You know the guys who work at, at Barhead, who are a Microsoft partner we work with. You know they they talk about like this idea of customer data platform more than CRM now because mm-hmm. CRM is really for a um, a sales organization that has lots of customers going through different processes and different things like that. But you know in an advice business, um, you know if you've got one hundred and thirty clients per advisor or whatever the number is now, do you do you really need this? massive CRM that don't you actually just need really efficient processes to do all yeah. those jobs that you rightly talk about. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think we might see a change of thinking about CRMs in the future. And I do like the idea of customer data platform was more of a mindset mm-hmm. and around what are the jobs I really want the CRM to do yeah, and answer that question and make some better decisions that way. And I, and I truly feel if some businesses thought that way, maybe they wouldn't have gone down the path of Salesforce in the first place. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, but again, never seen a bad demo, go on a cool study tour. It'll look yes. really great. It's going to fix all my business problems. Um, yeah. So, look, as I said, Salesforce, you can't go wrong with it. It's an awesome tool, but budget, significant amounts of money for ongoing development. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like you say, we probably, you know, quite a lot of the time in our advice businesses, we can use what's available to us already maybe mm. even keep it simple but the, the key there the key message i guess is to get our processes really better down understand how we're going to be interacting with our clients um you know as you as we were sort of talking about earlier that's going to become even bigger with client portals clients are going to be expecting i think to to have a portal to interact with um i think so they've got a portal for everything else i guess and it, it uh, on their phones and all that sort of stuff. So we sort of need to go down that that road. And I think importantly, just about portals as well, they're secure, right? We're, we're sort of ticking that cybersecurity box as well. You know, when we're not just client engagement, it's it's a secure way of interacting with our clients. We must stop sending SOAs and fact finds to our to our clients via email, unprotected with password, uh, password unprotection, yeah, all that sort of it. stuff. We've, we've got to stop doing that. So. But today, do it today. Stop doing it. Yep. Yeah. Use, use cloud links, whatever. Anything but email. Yeah. Anything totally. but email. Yeah. <laughs> so that's quite a bit that's happened in the past eight months. Any ideas about what's going to happen <laughs> up until the uh, end of the year? I, don't know. I think. Look, we're still the 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 fun. The environment hasn't changed that much. So we spoke. I think our predictions in the year we spoke a lot about the impact of venture capital funding coming out of tech and it, advice tech isn't immune. So we've definitely seen that with um, creative mass, advice intelligence, um, and there's probably been a few quieter ones. Six Park, we haven't spoke about that. So, yeah, so that's still washing through. And it's quite interesting though because you look at the US tech sector, that's kind of bounced back really quickly. Um, mm-hmm. but, but that's the um, comp- the major companies um Anything to do with AI is getting funded at the moment. That's hey, that's our next web wave. By the way, you're going to see all this AI advice tech come, not advice intelligence. People claiming AI capability, and that's that's probably an early prediction for mm-hmm. oh, 
it's going to start sooner than our predictions for next year, but here's an early prediction. I reckon we're going to see dozens of AI sort of wrapped technology positions yeah, to the market, which will be um, maybe 5 or 10% of them will be kind of the real deal and interesting. The other mm-hmm. 80% will be vaporware built on, frankly, built on ChatGPT's open, AI, open API. Yeah. It'll be an AI wrapper. Um, so just tread with caution. It's coming, you know. Um, Are you there? I'm here. Sorry, something just happened then. Okay. That's right. right. Um, So, yeah, so I think I'll sort of take a pause. So lots of AI startups coming our way. Mm-hmm. I I think our advice to clients is going to be let's look at what the AI is in Microsoft first. Let's look at those things and then we'll mm-hmm. worry about all the other stuff in the future. Um, and this, actually, AI is coming through Salesforce soon as well. So I think, um, yeah, there's always, a, there's always a new trend in a wave, right? And yeah. there's always noise. Um, I, I think the platform tech thing is going to intensify. So I rec- I think we'll see more acquisitions, not from Hub or those major ones, but from other platform players doing things in advice tech because everyone copies each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There'll be a lot of platforms out there saying, well, why didn't we buy MyProsperity? Why didn't we do this? And so, yeah. you know, I think um, I think all the other tech providers should be um, grateful to MyProsperity for perhaps triggering uh, an acquisition way mm-hmm. in the future as well. So yeah, I, I think that stuff's gonna that's gonna really continue. The the big the big one though we we're still seeing is this whole reset around the IFA market. And mm-hmm. we we as an industry just haven't quite caught up yet with what we need to do to support IFAs from a technology perspective. And something for Nura, we're still working it out, right? Um, yeah. how do we how do we support IFAs commercially? Um do so I I you know we are gonna go to great lengths to start coaching businesses around how much they should really be spending on technology in the future. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and uh, hot tip, it's probably more than what they think it's going to be. <laughs> well, it already <laughs> is, right, because every tech's going up so much. Everything's going up, costs in tech particularly, because cloud computing costs are going up. So so I think, yeah, strap yourself in, whether you're an Iris customer, or a Salesforce customer, whoever, your prices are going up big time mm-hmm. in the next mm-hmm. 12 to 18 months. They already have. But so I think that's going to drive. But I just think the general investment slate for tech's got to grow, and boards, advice boards, or owners of advice businesses have to get a lot more comfortable that they're going to have to invest in the stuff. Because hey, guess what? Other costs have gone up. Employee costs, salaries, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and clients, I reckon clients aren't going to cop big fee increases because your client, you know, advice clients have less money now too. So we're, we're at this sort of interesting point where I think, um, yeah. Advice business owners are going to have to get a lot more, lot more comfortable spending on tech. Um, licensees have made it really clear that it's user pay, so they're not going to buy, they're not going to give you tech for free, mm-hmm. um, and they're not going to invest in it either because they don't have the money too. So weeds and industry need to figure this this thing out, um, and I think that's probably going to drive the narrative for the next twelve months around that. 
as a, as a country, we still, as an industry, we grossly underspend relative to our peers in the US. So mm-hmm. US firms will spend 15 to 20% of their overall operational expenses generally on technology. Uh, in Australia, it's between 5 and 8% according to business health. It's really low. So we're going to change yeah. that. And I think that's just the legacy of the fact that back in the, the old days, the licensee paid for it all or the insurance company paid for it all or the, or the platform or whoever. Um, that's changing. Businesses have to grow up and start spending good money on tech. Yeah. And I think probably one of the key a key takeaway there is to just maybe, maybe don't make any quick decisions when it comes to um, purchasing new technology, getting on the AI bandwagon, like you say, doing your due diligence as usual, you know, really check out who your, um, what your technology provider is providing you, the, the longevity they have, the funding that they have, um, the staying power that they've got moving forward. Are they with you for the long term? I think that's really important because, you know, as we talked about earlier, the disruption to a business when technology changes is huge. It's It's a six to 12 to 18 months problem that you've got on your hands that you need to um, fix yeah. and that equals um, annoyed staff, you know, annoyed clients, your business really struggles. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's good advice. I think, you know, measure twice, cut once with with tech changes and and often if you're not sure, just don't do it. <laughs> you know, that's probably the bottom line. That that's and and I, I think you're right. It's for businesses. I mean, often how many clients do we get when they've already made the change and they've got to go back or it's too late? But it's more disruptive than changing licensee. I think mm-hmm. a lot of the time these, yeah. these firms. So, um, but but the inescapable reality is that we're going to have so much tech thrust upon us, sold to us um, mm-hmm. in the future. So, uh, I think. Um, you know, even our consulting work, right? We're talking a lot more about simplicity in design. You know, around yeah. less tech, consolidating tech stack, um, and I and I think that's resonating, Daniel. What do you think? Like, I think firms are kind of getting it now that these your the tech piles you coined so long ago. <laughs> That's not as cool anymore, right? It's not as cool. No, it's not. And I think people are sort of recognising the importance of having a tech stack that integrates as well. You know, that's a really big thing um, to have a tech stack that is integrating. And the more tech you have, the more integrations you need, you know, the the less likely that is those integrations are going to be working properly for you. So I think that's a really big deal as well. Keep it simple. Yeah, totally. Totally, but look, oh. I, I'm as I said, I'm 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 still optimistic about where it's all heading. I just think the tech landscape is going to look really, really different. I think platforms are going to play a more active role in deploying and supporting technology advisors, and not because they necessarily want to. I just think they're the last man standing when it comes to um, balance sheet strength and capability, and they have generally, like all the platforms we work with, they have good relationships with their advisors. They are a trusted partner because they don't mm. they tend do things well. So I just, this is sort of just always inevitable. Um, but there's obviously, you know, that's a, that's a huge shift and a huge mindset shift for platforms. Um, it could also change their economic relation with advisors because let's not forget clients pay for the platform, not the advisor. And I reckon, I reckon we've got to test that thinking for the future yeah. as to what's, how services are paid for. Anyway, we can talk about that another time. <laughs> Agreed. All right, it's been a dramatic um, 2023 so far. So um, we'll catch up again at the end of the year and and have a recap and and see how we're all going. Thanks for joining me today, Pete, on our podcast. And if you haven't already, take our tech health check at www.freneragroup.com and we'll catch you later.